Haggai chapter 1. I hope you can find that in your Bibles this morning. Everyone's Bible page numbers are different, so I can't just call it out. It's probably maybe one page in your Bible, kind of like the needle in the haystack, uh, but it's just a little bit towards, uh, if you go to Matthew and you start moving backwards, three books, you should come to it. As I get older, I think that I become a little bit more sensitive to the pollens that have uh, started to sprout. I don't know if anyone else is the same way. Um, so, uh, blessings on you all and also on myself uh, as we struggle not to give any appearance that we have COVID. <laughs> this is the new normal. So Haggai chapter 1, verse 1, I'm going to read through verse 11, but our main section we'll be thinking about is verse 7 through 11. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shetiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled homes while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways, you have sown much and harvested little, you eat but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house, and that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce, and I have called for a drought on the land, and the hills, and on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, on all their labors. It was a really strange sound the first time I heard it. I had to roll it over in my mind a little bit uh, when I first heard uh, a person in service industry say these words, my pleasure. Do you know what restaurant I was at? What was that? Chick-fil-A. Yeah, that's a almost a legendary response now. If you've ever gone through uh, uh, Chick-fil-A and you've, you've received and you said thank you for whatever reason, hopefully you've had good service. I've never had bad service there. But they've said, um, they've always said, you know, it's my pleasure. And uh, 
another legendary response, actually, I have heard in, uh, the, in the, uh, Allentown, Nazareth area is these words. A guy will say, uh, love, peace, and chicken grease. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard that one before or not, uh, but uh, my gut reaction when they would say my pleasure was, you ready? Yeah, right. You're just working this window. Do you really care? And uh, I've had some time to reflect on my initial reaction. I think I've come to a better conclusion, and maybe I was a little wrongheaded, and that might be because, actually, we are all, as people, imprinted with the nature of God and to take some enjoyment in serving others. Um, God takes pleasure in serving us in the sending of His own Son. He took great delight in providing a way for us to have a relationship with Him. Now, I've got no you know, scientific study to back up this kind of theory that I have, but I'd be willing to wager that people who eagerly participate in those qualities that we would associate with God Himself experience a profound joy through doing them. When a person makes it their aim to serve others, there, I believe, is an intrinsic joy that resonates within the soul that's felt. Now, we're created beings. We're all created in His image. So it would stand a reason that if some of the divine character shows up in our own lives, we would find pleasure in those activities which are centered around His character. Um, this morning, I'm going to be focusing on that thought of like when we make the, the pleasures of God our pleasure, how much that should impact and renew our souls. And the idea that I'm going to develop in this text and from this text, I believe it's defensible. I believe it's here. I didn't just pull this out of my ear. I believe it's here. Is this, that participation in Jesus' divine nature brings renewal. It brings renewal. Participation in Jesus' divine nature brings renewal. When we move from our sin and selfishness and move towards the character of God, there is a renewal that's felt, experienced, and it's real. It's real. You know, so often we are called to do things that Jesus has done. And as an example, we are called to pray for our enemies and to those who mock us. And as we turn the other cheek, there is a participation in the divine nature that can be accessible to every single one of us as believers. And so I want to consider this morning how that we participate, if we're participating in those activities, those things which God delights in, we're also going to experience some of that delight. And so this morning, I have two points, and the first is, I believe from this text, we could consider the path towards renewal. Consider the path towards renewal. Now, last Sunday, we encountered the word, we encountered the word, consider your ways, now look in verse 7. We see these words. Lord Je- uh, this, this says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Now back in verse 5, we see this again. Look at it with me. 
In verse 5, it says, Now therefore, says Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Is this a, a, a stutter? What is the purpose of this repetition? Is there any difference between the repetitions? Well, the first repetition, the first, excuse me, statement, um, has more of an evaluation of the negative outcomes, the negative outcomes of your actions. Um, in verse 5, he, he's, he's encouraging people to look at, like, you know, you've worked really hard, and look at these negative outcomes that have come about because what you've, you've neglected me. And um, what's really interesting is that now in this repetition in verse 7, there's now a new orientation towards not the negative outcomes, but more to the positive outcomes that could be yours. The positive outcomes. Consider your ways, evaluate, think about taking a different path. A different path will have different outcomes. In verse 7, he encouraged them to go up to the hills and bring wood and to build a house, a different path. They had been self-focused. They had been on a different kind of trajectory, and it hadn't turned out very well. And so now he's encouraging them. And in this, there's a command to go, to change course, to do something different. And God is the same in every dispensation. He is the same in every way. Whenever he asks us to do something, he asks us to do it unconditionally. It's a different path. It's a different way of going about things. And in verse 8, I hear in these words, I hear the words of Jesus. I hear him speaking through the voice of prophecy. We ought to be obedient unconditionally at all times to him and what he commands. Now, verse 8, there's like a shock, you know, a spitfire sequence. Go up to the hill, bring wood, build the house. Just a very spitfire quick. And I, I think when we look at a command like that, we'd say, well, like, I, I don't see the immediate application for me as a Christian. I mean, yeah, I mean, we're in a building. We have a house that we can worship in. We have that. Oh, what is it? What, how do we relate to God and his his instructions here. How do we apply this to our lives today? I think it's important for us to realize that the way we relate to God today is no longer founded upon a physical building, right? We don't have a physical building, a temple. Uh, we don't have a priest. We don't have an ongoing sacrificial system in place but instead, we relate to God through a different kind of temple, don't we? The Lord Jesus Christ described himself as a new kind of temple in which we would have access to God. And Jesus uh, said that there would be a day in which they would destroy that temple, and in three days, he would raise it again. And so there is a very real way in which the old covenant is done away with, and we now worship God in spirit and in truth through the person of Jesus Christ. And so it's important for us to see this implication for our own lives today. And I'm going to develop that more in just a moment, but I want you to think about the particular circumstances now in which 
they found themselves needing to obey unconditionally. They were told to go out and to get timber, timber from the countryside, and particularly to the hills. When they came back from being in exile, Israel, Israel found lots of large stones still there, but the materials that held them together, like wood, as reinforcement had been burned. There was nothing there to, to kind of hold them together and to form the roof structure for that building. And so they had to go out. In fact, uh, they were instructed to go to Lebanon, um, where the large forests uh, had timbers large enough to span the distance between the walls of the temple. Um, I just don't know how good our memories are, but if we think back to uh, just a couple of years ago when Notre Dame burned, I don't know if you've seen some of the pictures afterwards uh, in which basically you can still see the, the structure of the, the walls, but the, the roof was gone. It was mainly the roof that had burned. Do you remember what the, the name of that roof, what, it was, what its nickname was? It was called the forest. It was called the forest because it had wood that had been harvested during the Middle Ages that had grown for 400 years. It had probably started growing in about 8 or 900 A.D., and then they were harvested in about 12 to 1300 A.D. That's, a, that's just unbelievable. In fact, I was just in the course of this looking at this on the, on the news, and, and it was, uh, there was immediate desire to, to provide wood again uh, for the building of this, the, the, the ceiling of Notre Dame, but it was learned that there's actually not in France old enough wood, large enough wood to be able to carry out and do the job. And so they're going to have to now use metal structures instead. Uh, they wanted to originally use wood to make it exactly the way it had been. And so I, I kind of bring these uh, kind of facts to our attention to help us to personalize the relevance, the realness of the rebuilding here and wanting to, to build with living characteristics of like wood, organic materials. But we build here differently. We build our organic structures on the cornerstone of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think it's really important for me to pause for just a moment to think about Jesus' ways. And in following Jesus' ways, we come into contact with the living God. I think we forget that each command of Jesus, when it's given, it's designed to renew our nature. It's to renew our attitudes. It's to renew our understanding of who God is and to live in fellowship with Him. The Holy Spirit, who gives us life, comes and dwells within us and to give us the experiential awareness and the joy of following Jesus Christ. We don't 
go out into the woods to build a temple by cutting down with a physical axe, do we? Because we have a relationship with Jesus, who is the true temple, all of that has been completed, but we have something that we do ourselves with the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't necessarily go up into these hills here beside us and cut down trees, although some of us would like us to cut down trees on the new property we bought. But we actually take the Holy Spirit and we cut down the old wood that lives within our souls. We have to cut down old things that plague within our bodies and allow the Holy Spirit to renew and to do new work within our souls. We cut down in our lives to prepare for the new by putting to death, putting to death those earthly things within us. We put away sexual immorality. We put away impurity. We put away passions that, that we live by or evil desires or covetousness, which is idolatry. These are things that, we, these are, that grow within our souls and yet they get cut down. They get cut down by the power of the Holy Spirit when we turn from them. And in the process of that, we, we inherit a joy and we can worship God from the heart. You know, the deceptive nature of our heart is such that we can, we can turn many things, good things that God gives us, into idols, and we can look to those and worship those instead of Jesus who gave us those gifts and benefits. Things like a spouse or like a child, things that God gives to us, beautiful things. We can orient our whole lives around the, the success of you know, our children, and we can, we can distract ourselves from the worship of God. And so, renewal has to come. You know, these people said, you know, it wasn't a good time to build the temple. There's never really, as I said in a previous sermon, there's really never ever a good time to build anything that's of substance and value to God. That's what Satan tells us. It's always inconvenient. It's always inconvenient to take the axe of the Holy Spirit and cut it, cut the roots of that bitterness that may be welling up within our hearts. There are so many people who aren't willing to do the real, the real work of going up to the hills, so to speak, going up to the hills and following Jesus and doing what he commands. One person in Jesus' ministry said this, he said, I will follow you. I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus turned to him and said, I've got nowhere to lay my head. Are you sure you know what you are committing to? Another person said to Jesus, Lord, let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said, let the dead bury the dead. Another said, let me say farewell to those who are at my house. And Jesus said, no one puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. The reality is, is that when God, through the Spirit, and we hear the commands of Jesus, and we're called to put to death something in our life, we can't make bargains with God. 
We'll never have renewal in our life if we're always hedging our bets. If we're always saying, you know what, I'll get to that tomorrow. We all have to come to this awareness that we cannot bargain with Jesus. We've got to put sin to death. We've got to do it immediately. We've got to be the temple, the temple of the Holy Spirit. So, as we consider this text, we're hearing, you know, Jesus, the Spirit of Jesus is talking to the people and say, look, you've had your time to, you know, build your house, but what about my house? It's time now. Go up to the hills and go. So, Jesus, God wants from us an immediate response to His commands. It's how renewal takes place. But I think it's important for us to see that we we also see, we see Jesus's, we seek Jesus's pleasure and glory when we do obey. Now, I'm going to read verse um, 8 again, but it's the last half here of these verses that I want us to see. Go up to the hills, bring wood, build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. The architectural design of the temple would bring glory to God. It would show God as being worthy of worshiping. I often have thought long and hard about this phrase, the glory of God. I don't know if you've ever had time to just stop and think about it, but I have heard the phrase glory of God ever since I was a little boy in which I would go to camp. We would go to camp for a full week at this Christian camp, and before every meal, we would quote these words from 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, I think they were trying to help us to understand the glory of God by thinking of the concrete moment of eating the food in front of us, but the glory of God has always been so abstract to me. I haven't been able to put my finger on what it actually is. Um, somewhere along the line, I, I heard uh, John Piper talk about the glory of God as, being, as, as making, much, making much about God. That helped me a little bit better to understand that term. If I make much of something, I'm, I'm, and I'm attributing to it something of value, right? I, I've, I've described how this can happen a number of different ways. I, I, I've shared with you before of how I have a lilac bush, a lilac bush that I put a lot of energy into to try to get to produce fruit, right? The summer, three years later after it was planted, it bloomed, and I just, it, I made much of that. I, I, I told everyone everywhere, my mother-in-law, everyone, got to hear about my lilac. I made much of it, Okay. That helped me a little bit to understand the idea of glorifying God. But then I read somewhere else, actually, that helped me even more, in which one theologian said this. He described the glory of God as the pleasure of God. Let me say that again. He described the glory of God as the pleasure of God. And that helped me to think about the concrete 
purpose of what glory does. It brings pleasure to God. Last Sunday, I I shared an example of how we can put Jesus first in our giving. And I I explained how that when, when we do give, and it was true in my own heart, when I learn to give systematically to the Lord and giving him the first fruit as an expression of his worthiness as King of kings and Lord of lords, I began to experience the pleasures that God was experiencing. I was beginning to see and take enjoyment in the provisions that the Lord Jesus was making for me. And in the process of giving glory to God, I also was experiencing pleasure in that expression. I think it's important for us to realize that Jesus is not a miser who wants us to be miserable. He wants us to enjoy those things which he also enjoys. And if we are giving for the purpose of the glory of God, then it stands to reason we're tasting the divine pleasure. We're enjoying some of God's divine nature. There are some people who have found such joy in giving that it becomes an addiction. I know people who they love giving. And they don't just give to the Lord, they also give to other people. And it's like, you almost are like, should I receive this? This seems over the top. But it's like the more over top it is, the more they enjoy it, and the more it blossoms, and the more it grows. So who should I stand in the way of that? You know, think about this. Now, I, I used a concrete example of giving, but I'm going to move now a little bit abstract, okay? But I think you can handle it. Think about this. When we hold a a grudge towards another person, we internalize a narrative about that person. And it's like a broken record that just kind of keeps going and going and going. In our minds, we start to articulate this this, this almost voodoo-like curse against them. How does that make us feel? Happy? It makes us feel like trash. (laughs) We're like a dry and barren wilderness when that's going on. But you know what the path towards renewal looks like? It it starts with that unconditional obedience that says, okay, I'm going to take an axe and I'm going to cut down that root of bitterness. I'm just going to start hacking that thing to death. I'm going to get out my spade and I'm going to start digging up and get right down to that root and start whacking that root. I used to do that as a kid thinking I would get somewhere when I was trying to build tree houses and stuff. But we have to take out that axe as believers and just whack that root. How do we do that? We start by confessing our sin out loud to God. We don't have this internal narrative going on in our head anymore. We stop, saying, we stop talking evil about them in our heads. Instead, we say, God, I am a sinner, and I have done wrong by those people. 
I'm hurting them in my heart. I don't want this to be going on in my life anymore. And then we start replacing with positive thoughts about those people. We start praying for those people. And as we start praying for others who have hurt us and offended us, you know what starts to happen inside of our hearts? There's a little trickle that starts to come. There is like a little bubble of spring that starts to well up. Instead of being a dry and arid ground in the soul, all of a sudden, you begin to start to have joy again. You start to have renewal. You start to be able to, to praise God for those other people and mean it from the heart. It's unbelievable the pleasure that you can experience when you align your, yourself with God's pleasures. This is a formula, actually, that unbelievers can follow, yet to an, a lesser degree. I mean, there is a certain common grace that we experience in this world, and I say to a lesser degree because they can kind of emulate some of these things, but yet be missing the motive of God's glory. Believers, on the other hand, who obey God for the love of God, experience a joy that's infinitely greater than those of an unbelieving world. And here's the, not so, here's the little secret, the not-so-little secret about this whole thing, is that joy is found when we participate in Jesus' divine nature. Renewal, turning away from sin embraces the holiness and goodness of God. So, I've kind of walked you through from a theological, also practical explanation of this text. We're not building a temple made with bricks and mortar. We're waging a different kind of war, if you will, one that's spiritual. We have a battle to, to wage. We have a building to construct, but it's called the glory of God. It's, it's the Spirit working within our hearts. But as it is, and as it always has been, we've always never thought that the time was of the essence. It's what keeps us from any point of renewal. We, the opportunity for change can always come at any moment. It could be right now. But so often... We misconstrue the times, and we need to consider the time of renewal. Verses 9 through 11, God lifts a complaint again about Judah. Their claim was, now it's not the right time to build in verse 2, but the reality is in these verses, he's going to show them, he's going to try to, to show them that they've really misread the circumstances. And it's so easy for us to do to misread what's going on around us. And so it's important for us to take up the lesson here and see what Jesus is saying, or the prophet in the spirit of testimony says. We ought to evaluate from God's perspective the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Evaluate the circumstances from God's perspective. Verse 9, 
And uh, I'm going to come back to verse 10 in a moment, but I'm going to read verse 9 and 11. And it says here, You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Drop down to verse 11. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills and on the grain and the new wine and the oil on what the ground brings forth and on man and the beast and all their, all their labors. God is letting them know that he is sovereign over all things. He's in charge. He is the one who allows certain seasons to be productive and other seasons not to be as productive. It's in his frame of you know, control. It's, it's something that is reserved for him. It's his sovereign power. And our problem as people is we, <laughs> with finite creatures, we cannot see very far down the road. We, we, it's hard for us to analyze now, we've just been through a, a, a remarkable period of time in American history, and yet I don't think any of us really truly understands what went happened. We just went through a, a, a circumstance that pro nationwide has never experienced in 200 years of its history. And we're still scratching our heads, and we should be scratching our heads. But we have to be careful that we don't misread the circumstance like Israel and Judah misread their circumstances. Thankfully, God is good, and so he orders everything for the purpose of refining, of developing his people. We so often misread the circumstances around us. You know, Judah tried to harvest, but what does God say was the reason they couldn't harvest. It says in verse 9, I blew it away. I was the one who made it difficult for you. I was the one. It was the Lord who, who produced a hot, drying wind. I remember a fall a couple of years ago where we had pretty good wet, wet summer, like you know the wet summers that produce the like bright color leaves in the fall? And not too wet. It has to be just the right amount of wet. I get that. But I was looking forward to a beautiful display of colors here. And I remember it was maybe like the third week of September. We had a heat wave. And all of the green leaves hadn't started to turn yet. And they shriveled. You remember that? They shriveled right up. They turned brown, like sickly brown. And then they, the, there was a wind that came behind it, and they blew, it was blown away. And I, I use that as an illustration for the kind of drought that they experienced. It was just like unnatural. It was like it came along so unexpectedly, out of character. And Frank, that was out of character for our time, for our area. But, you know, they looked at their circumstances. They looked at their negative circumstances. And instead of seeing it from God's perspective, they looked at it from their perspective. They didn't read the signs of the times properly. Jesus 
or the Spirit speaking through here highlights the sign. In verse 9, he says, Because my house lies in ruin is the reason, verse 11, that I have called for a drought. The two are related. The circumstances coordinate. And God is opening up the eyes for them to see it. In the original language, there is like a little poetic touch here that the English translation doesn't allow us to see because the word ruin there is the word harev and the word drought is the word horev. They rhyme. They're linked. And the Spirit is saying, you haven't been able to see the link between the destruct, the temple that sits in ruins and the drought that you're experiencing. But I see it. Adverse circumstances are never not a right time to follow the Lord. Let me say that again. Adverse circumstances like COVID, from our standpoint, seem like inopportune times for renewal. However, from God's point of view, it's the perfect time. And from God's point of view, we need to address the waywardness of our hearts, the apathy of our hearts, the negligence of our worship of God. Evangelicalism has not taken the call of discipleship seriously. We've allowed convenience to dictate the terms of how we will do worship. We've designed services to attract large crowds of apathetic people. And those apathetic people can't have their services now. How should we be looking at this? The reality is we ought to be looking at this from God's perspective, shouldn't we? Now is a good time for renewal. Now is the good time to get right with the Lord. Now is a good time to prioritize our lives around the worship of Christ. This is it. This is our time. Jesus Christ could return tomorrow, and that would be glory, wouldn't it? But wouldn't we want to find him? Wouldn't we want to meet him? Wouldn't he want us to find us being faithful, of looking and longing for him? Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things that we worry about, all these other things that, we, that concern us, God will take care of them. He will take care of them. Now, I, I jumped over verse 10, but I want you to see what it says here. It says, therefore the heavens above you have withheld their dew. Above you is an important little phrase, which also means because of you. That word phrase can go both directions, and I think here that's the implication. The heavens above you and also because of you have withheld their due. What you've needed, 
And it's true. Whenever we move away from the, the very nature of God, whenever we move away and we sin and we perpetuate maybe a, a root of bitterness in our lives, the heavens close up above us because of us. We don't experience God's blessings. Our book study this week, we've looked at some essential doctrine of sin, and I just want to quote a little brief section from Wayne Grudem, which he says this, even though all Christians still sin, they should not participate in a long-term pattern of greater and greater disobedience to God's moral law. For no one born makes a practice of sinning. But if a person makes a practice of sinning, that is someone continues in a pattern of disobedience without repentance, he may not have ever truly put his trust in Jesus for salvation. That is, the sinful pattern of his life could show that he never really was a Christian. That is truth, and it's something that we ought to take into consideration. In other words, maybe we have never truly participated in the divine nature of God. Maybe the Holy Spirit has never breathed new life into us. Those who are born again may lose perspective from time to time, but they're going to come back again to seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And that's where renewal comes from. That's where it comes from. And participation in Jesus' divine nature is what brings renewal. A friend of mine recently penned these words. He said, What baffles me is the silence on the part of so many of our church leaders across North America. They are forever reading, publishing, and quoting the Reformers, but do not seem to have a word for this generation. We're under God's judgment, and yet like dumb dogs, they do not bark. God help me if this dog doesn't bark. The antagonism that we are experiencing in North America is not because we've had the wrong tone. It's because we haven't been speaking at all. It's because we've been so busy with our 401ks, our homes, our businesses, our pleasures. The heavenly dew is closed up because of us. But renewal, renewal comes when God's pleasure is our pleasure. Renewal is obedience to Jesus Christ when he says it and how he wants us to do it and right away. Are we misreading the signs? Are we looking at the signs of what's going on? What path are we on? Are we going up to the hills to cut wood? Are we doing the hard work of repentance with the the truth is now now is a good time for renewal let's pray